Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Anne Case and Sir Angus Deaton, two of the world's leading economists, to discuss their new vision for capitalism. In the conversation, they discuss why we've created an economy and a society that privileges the college-educated class to the detriment of the working class and the huge political, economic and social consequences of such a social order. It's a really fascinating conversation and it was chaired by Francine Lacroix, the award-winning anchor for Bloomberg News. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partner at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. Welcome to this Intelligence Square event with two very distinguished economists. Anne Case, leading authority, of course, on the links between economic status and health outcomes. She's Alexander Stewart, 1886, Professor of Economics and Public Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University, where she is the director of the research program in development studies. Angus Deaton, winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics, one of the world's foremost experts on the economics of well-being, health and poverty. Now, he's a senior scholar on the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at the Economic Department at Princeton University. So thank you both. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And together, of course, they have authored this wonderful but tough book uh, titled Deaths of Despair. It's all too sadly become part of our political vocabulary. Now, the second half of the title, though, The Future of Capitalism, does indicate hope, and we'll be hearing a lot more about both sections during the course of this event. So thank you both for joining us. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's a very well-written it's a difficult book because of the subject matter, it's a succinct, and you're an absolute authority, both of you, on this. When you look at the deaths of despair, have they accelerated because of the pandemic? That's a good question. It's, and it's such a pleasure to be with you tonight. The deaths of despair, which were about 165,000 deaths from suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol in 2019, will probably be higher during the pandemic or after the pandemic. It's not clear necessarily that it will be caused by the pandemic. Unfortunately, drug overdose deaths were rising through 2019 because of the arrival in the U.S. of fentanyl, which is a very powerful opioid in the street market. And so it's going, it's been, it increased through 2019 and the beginning of 2020 before lockdown. So we imagine it's going to be yet even higher post lockdown. But against that, it's the case that people thought perhaps that suicides would rise during the pandemic, during lockdown. And there are reasons one might expect that to happen. People are isolated. But the data that we have so far suggests that those deaths have been pretty steady during the pandemic. And alcohol will take a long time to know for sure. We've heard a lot about quarantinis, you know, people getting together and having parties online. Alcohol sales are up, but that may be because people aren't able to go to restaurants and bars and have a drink there. 
So um, the prognosis isn't good in the sense that we don't think things will get better. And there's reason to suspect things might get worse. Or just to gloss on that a bit, we really don't think it's because of the pandemic. Because the drug deaths were rising before the pandemic, they were rising into the pandemic, and it seems like the partial information we have is they've continued to rise. Suicides take a long time for the data to come in because the coroners have to make complicated decisions about whether people died that way or not. We have some partial data from um, California. There's a group there that is looking at the death certificates every day as they come in, and it actually looks like suicide has gone down during the pandemic. And there's another model of suicide. You know, suicide tends to go down in wartime. So like in wartime Britain, suicides went down a lot. And, you know, people were stressed. They were under a great deal of stress and pressure and their lives were disrupted. But there was some sort of sense of unity that was not there before the war, for example. And maybe the pandemic is more like that. You know, people focusing on the pandemic. And for, for a long time, these suicides or drug overdoses were actually seen as personal tragedies and not something that was systemic. Why do you think it took, I guess, society such a long time to realize what we were seeing in the U.S. or what we were not seeing? It's, that's a good question. Most of these, the rise in drugs, alcohol and suicide deaths are happening among people without a four-year college degree in America. That's about two-thirds of the adult population. But a lot of those deaths were happening under the radar. Um, people weren't looking to uh, the white working class as being a group that was at risk of bad things happening. I mean, whites are the most privileged group in America. And so the focus was very much on whether or not minority health was improving and minority health was catching up with white health. And very little attention was being paid to the fact that um, mortality rates among people without a college degree had been rising. And so I think it's partially social, it's partly political, but that it, it, until it caused, it was large enough to cause all cause mortality to go up which we uh, recognized back in 2014, it wasn't on anyone's agenda. No, I think that's right. The suicide is an odd thing, you know, because you you get a lot of publicity when a celebrity (laughs) commits suicide. You know, you can think of lots of examples or a celebrity dies of drug overdoses, you know, maybe a pop singer or, or someone who's very well known. But that's not really where it's happening. It's happening much more among less educated, ordinary working people. And that's unusual because if you go back even to Durkheim, you know, who wrote about suicide at least more than 100 years ago, he thought that more educated people were more likely to kill themselves. And that's not what's happening now. And many people think of that as very strange. And I, I might also mention that suicides are up in England, have been rising in England. And it's becoming a problem that's getting more attention there, too, now. So why are they on the rise? It's not only about the economy, right? You know, no one truly understands suicide. You know, Durkheim's still one of the best books on it, even though it was written in the 1890s. And predicting suicide is very hard. It it tends to be true that during recessions, um, suicide do go up a bit. 
but it certainly was not true in the last recession. So, you know, in the Great Recession, and it's one of the things we argue in the book, not just suicides, but also the other deaths of despair were rising before the Great Recession, they rose during the Great Recession, and they rose after the Great Recession. So you just don't see this effect. So something is very puzzling. But, you know, it's like there's something specially wrong with America <laughs> in that suicides are declining all around the world, except in America and now more recently in Britain. So there's something going on that's not a good sign. So, as you say, it's more than just the financial, present-day financial circumstances, which is why we kind of dug further. Why Why is this happening? Why is it getting worse over time? And why is it happening to people who haven't been to college? And we think more than just the fact that the labor market turned sour for these people, it's it's what the labor market had been supporting for these people that are that they're no longer getting support for. In the U.S., marriage rates dropped dramatically for people who haven't been to college. Out of wedlock, childbearing has gone up dramatically at the same time. Church going is down, and in the U.S., uh, organized religion is a really important institution and has been for two hundred years. But now white working class people are are significantly less likely to report that they affiliate with any church. So home life is fragile, community life is fragile, work life is fragile, and we think it's that that causes people to turn to drugs or alcohol or to kill themselves. So if this is an existential threat, almost the fabric of society really being torn apart, whose job is it to try and, and put it back together? Is it is it companies? Is it governments? Is it organizations? I think ultimately it would have to be government. And there are some things that you can see. You know, this group is, of course, very like the group that voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, they're very angry. In Britain, they're not so different from the group that voted for Brexit. You know, they, they hate what's going on in London. <laughs> There's this grand cosmopolitan city where you were sitting there, and it's the center of the world, and they hate it. Or they see it as very different from what's happening to them. And I think in America, the, there's a lot of disgust at the educated cosmopolitan coastal elites but, you know, it's in everybody's interest to fix this because very angry people for whom not much has been done for a very long time are, are going to, you know, it's just very dangerous as we saw in the attack on the Capitol or indeed if they elect populists, um, you know, who are going to bring the whole system down. And I think Joe Biden, who's sort of more an old-fashioned Democratic politician who remembers when the Democratic Party was rooted in the union movement, really does understand a lot about the distress of working class people. And certainly, you know, our work is well known among the, the new appointees in Washington, like Janet Yellen, who we've talked about this work on many occasions, um, C.C. Rouse, who is our boss, you know, and knows us very well. Um, so, you know, there's a real understanding of some of the things that have to be done. Um, you know, one thing was unions have been almost vanished in the private sector. And unions really did things for working class people. You know, they got them better wages. They got better wages for other people who weren't even in the union. They did a lot of stuff within a plant. 
and making sure that it was safe and enforcing regulations. They were part of the local community. You know, we always like to tell the story of Bob Putnam's, you know, guy who was bowling alone. He was bowling alone in a union hall. Well, now he couldn't bowl alone in the union hall because there's no union hall anymore. So <laughs> there's, and I think a lot of that is a matter of public policy. You know, governments, state and federal governments in the U.S., have persecuted unions for many years, making it harder for them to organize, you know, taking their privileges away. There's also, I mean, when you think about, we think the roots of this are in the fact that the labor market for less educated people has gotten much worse for about 50 years now. The high water mark for blue collar wages was 1972. So for people without a college degree, wages have been falling. They go up and down a little bit with the business cycle, but they've been falling for 50 years. So I think that we need to be thinking about the fact that if we don't do something that, that helps people find work that they find meaningful and that gives them a living wage, we, we see no reason to think that this crisis will just right itself somehow. So, do you think so far capitalism has actually failed middle-aged white Americans? I, I don't think you could quite say that because, you know, all of us are better off for 250 years of capitalism since the Enlightenment. You know, it's been an incredible engine of bringing up people out of poverty and giving us today's living standards. What's happening, though, is it's not delivering for a long time. It, it delivered pretty widely. And there's a lot of people who are now not sharing in that growing prosperity. So there's been quite a lot of economic growth in America since the war, even since 1970, though growth has been slower since 1970. But it's just not being shared with a very large chunk of the population. I mean, the population that doesn't have a BA is two-thirds of the American population. Can you explain why, you know, if you're worse off than you were four or five years ago, there is a tendency, as you said, to maybe vote for you know, Donald Trump or to vote for Brexit. But, th but they're not putting in place the policies that actually help you. Well, I don't think they see anyone who's putting in policies that would actually help them. And they feel sort of betrayed for a long time. We write quite a lot in the book, and other people have written about it too, about, you know, what meritocracy has done to America and also to Britain. Anne and I are meritocrats who sort of climbed the ladder from relatively, you know, not not rich, not poor, but, um, you know, backgrounds. And we worked our way up the educational ladder and we think that's a great thing. But, you know, here you've got this third of the population in the US who did that and they've got all the good jobs and they're sharing the economic growth. But they've turned on these other people and because they're good, they did it on merit, they think if the other people didn't do it, it's their own fault. They're demeritocrats, as it were. And in some ways, that was really horribly summarized by Hillary Clinton's statement about the basket of contemptibles. You know, the, this, um, not contemptible, the, the basket of deplorables. Okay. You know, showing this sort of contempt for people, the less educated people, which I think a lot of less educated people in America really feel. Yeah, the first Trump election heard described as the can you hear me now election. 
people who felt like they, they, they were invisible and they were angry and they saw one lever and they pulled it. But I want to go back, if I can, Francine, for one second. We actually see this as it's not just people in middle age who are at risk. We're finding in our work that younger and younger birth cohorts, so people born in 1970 are at higher risk than people born in 1960, and people born in 1980 are, are at even higher risk. So it's as if that the the longer people face a future that does not look bright, the higher their risk of um, of turning to something to soothe themselves that is pretty deadly. I think we could also decelerate the rate at which good jobs for less educated Americans are going away. So, you know, one thing that has been written about us is that um, we have investment incentives for firms to put robots in place. You know, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, maybe we could let the market take care of that and not hasten the, the arrival of the robots. But also, as we write in the book, we think American healthcare is a terrible drag on the economy and particularly on working class jobs just because it's so expensive and so much of it, you know, is funded through labor market. And then at the same time, you've got these pharma firms that are pumping out legalized heroin and addicting people so that you get this terrible crisis of addiction and death at the same time. So the healthcare sector has a lot to answer for. So what is the first thing you would change? And you touch on this in the book. I mean, you also touch on, on you know, the fact that you could have two, two states with very similar economic situations, but actually have very different numbers in terms of deaths of despair. Uh, what would we fix first? It's, this is such a, it's a, it's a hard knot to try to untangle. We need to, we need to improve. I think we should talk about two things. One is education and the other one is the healthcare system. Um, both are very heavy lifts. But with education, our education system in America is laser focused on the children who will go to college, which means it's leaving behind 65, 70% of kids who are not college bound. And they're just out there and they have to make their own way. So we think that, first of all, skills training and making connections with the labor market to meaningful, well-paid well jobs for people who are not going to go for a four-year college degree is incredibly important. And that's just been, there are some work is being done in that area and it seems to be effective. But I think, so education would be, close to the top of the list because that, that educational divide divides on all these dimensions on early death, on reports of pain, on lack of marriage and, and stable uh, and more fragile lives. But for healthcare... We got to stop spending 20% of GDP on healthcare <laughs> and for the worst life expectancy of any rich country in the world. So this is just nuts. And, you know, we did not commit in the book quite liberally to any particular form of healthcare reform, right? Yeah. Just because this is an open debate. There's been huge pressure. You know, Bernie Sanders has pressed for single payer forever. There are various other forms of public option would probably help. 
But, you know, there's lots of models out there. Different European countries fund their healthcare systems in different ways. You know, the Swiss and the French spend more than the British do as a share of GDP, for example. All of those systems are better than ours and, you know, promote better health and, um, you know, and cost less. And the cost is strangling, you know, good jobs. And so uh, you really need two things to make a healthcare system work. There are lots of ways of getting them. One is that you need people to be insured automatically, preferably from birth. So, you know, the day you're born, you're in the healthcare system and you can't get out of it. So it doesn't depend on you paying voluntary contributions or someone else paying them on your behalf. The second thing you need is some form of cost control. And all European countries do that in one way or another. And that's anathema to the healthcare industry here because so many people in hospitals, hospital administrators, device manufacturers, executives and pharma companies are earning enormous salaries which would be destroyed by cost control, even doctors. Doctors in Britain probably get paid too much, but here they get paid about twice as much. And that's just because they won't let kids go to medical school, you know. So we've got to try to undermine that and find some way of bringing it under control. But the vested interests are just so powerful, so rich. And part of the, there's a horrible loop here, which is you let this happen. They make so much money and they can use that money to defend themselves against any change. And so and the danger is you can't have reform and all that you have is a catastrophe. We sort of wondered if COVID would provide that impetus, but it's very unclear. It's too early to tell there. And obviously the pharma companies, which were most famous for addicting everybody with opioids, are now most famous for generating vaccines at record speed. And that's probably done quite a lot for their public image. So I have a couple of questions. Please keep on sending those questions in for everyone watching us. Um, Angus, given what you've just said, is there a, a, you know, do citizens in America want that reform? Or is it the big lobby groups or is it, you know, just people saying, well, yeah, it's fine for these monopolies to go ahead and doctors to live the way they have? I think they want the reform, but as soon as the, the lobbyists get to work and the television ads and all the rest of it, and the, the system is exquisitely dis, um, constructed to avoid reform. You know, in Britain, when you don't put enough money into the health service, you know, people start walking around on broken hips and have to wait years to get into service, and there's a public outcry. But here, none of that happens, and that's because most people are happy with the health insurance they have, and they think someone else is paying for it. You know, if they had to pay for it every month, I think reform would be much easier. I think maybe some of your uh, viewers or listeners don't understand the American system, which is that, for the most part, employers pay the health insurance premium for every worker. And currently in the U.S., a family policy is $21,000 a year. So a worker who might only be worth $35,000 to the firm well, if I have to pay my share, which is about 70% of that $21,000 a year premium to, to hire this person, I'll outsource that job. So that's a large part of why no big companies have their own food services or cleaners or motor pool or all of the, the jobs that used to make you be part of a bigger firm. 
those jobs now belong to some outsourced company that doesn't provide any um, the, the same kind of benefits that you would have gotten. So it's a crazy, complicated system. And Americans, I think they look and they think it's so complicated. They know it's expensive. They shrug. They decide it's too complicated. They go off and worry about something else. But with COVID, if suddenly people are going to see themselves receive these bills for having been hospitalized, the debate may move to the middle of the distribution, which is where it's going to have to move if we're going to see reform. So that's my hope that the one silver lining of COVID will be that enough people will suddenly decide it's worth their while to stare at those bills and say, this is totally unreasonable. We need change. We don't know how many millions of Americans have been hospitalized during COVID, but a lot. And it depends a bit on where they come from. You know, most of them are less educated or black or Hispanic. They're much less political power than if they were white middle class, better off people. So we don't know about that yet. And when you talk about education, what's the most, how do you keep people in an education? Or how do you make sure that people can get the degrees they need to have a, a better job and therefore a better quality of life? This is where it's a really heavy lift. One of the unions that continues to be very strong are the teachers' unions, so who for whom change is going to be very, very difficult to swallow. But we're, I think our kindergarten through 12th, here it's 12th grade education, which was conceptualized at the beginning of the last century, is no longer uh, workable for the 21st century. So there's going to have to be out-of-the-box thinking in terms of what do we do for people from, say, age 13 to 18 in terms of um, helping them engage and think about skills that will uh, be marketable and uh, provide enough um, income to uh, raise a family. I have a great question, which is from Eric saying, is society too divided to achieve meaningful change? Well, I think it's going to have to, the change is going to have to heal those divisions to some extent. And you know, we're going to have to share economic growth better, you know, across the spectrum of skills and education than we've been doing. So the division is in part the problem, and it makes the problem harder to solve. Very much like, you know, the rich do so well, and they can use their money to protect themselves. But, you know, they run the risk of bringing on a revolution if you do that. And it was sort of like, you know... (laughs) The, the French aristocrats didn't think, you know, that they should have to pay taxes to fight all the wars that the French were fighting before the revolution. And, you know, the French revolution was a result of that. It would be good not to have a revolution here. But, you know, I think in some ways <laughs> what we saw is, is the beginning of that. I mean, you've got these right wing groups storming the capital. Large sections since the election, there have been something like 400 new laws proposed by state legislatures to limit voting. There's a very large number of Americans who don't believe in democracy at all on both the left and the right. And, you know, people look to China and say, well, you know, there's bad things happening in China, but it's not so great what's happening here either. 
to I have another question, um, and this person asks: To what extent is social media responsible for the rise in suicides? Oh, I'd love to know the answer to that, yeah. but um, I don't think we have really almost any good work on that, or if there is, um, we really don't know. It's it's such a, a paradox, right? Because social media is a way to connect people. And we know that isolation is a risk factor for suicide. But it's possible that the kinds of connections one makes online are in no way a substitute for actually physically face-to-face -face meeting with people. So the extent to which young people go into their bedrooms and close the door and, you know, flip open their computers we think that's probably puts them at risk down the line. So it's certainly a hard problem to think about how we get people to come back out of their bedrooms and go out back into public once COVID is gone. And there is a long tradition in the suicide literature of attributing social isolation to suicide. So that we write in the book about the suicide belt in the United States, which is runs right up the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, where we spend a month in the summer in Montana in the mountains, the suicide rate is about five times as high as it is where we spend most of the rest of the year. And I think there's a fairly good research program on that, suggesting that just not having other people around is, is poses a danger for suicide. It's sort of like, you know, if you're just feeling really, really bad and you run into someone, they can pull you out of it. Whereas if you're away by yourself, uh, that's much harder. So if it's true, as I think we both suspect it is, that social media has made loneliness worse, not better. You know, that you're looking at pictures of people on Instagram who are having a wonderful time and you're feeling totally alone and miserable. If, if social media are making isolation worse, then you could certainly build a plausible case that social media is linked to suicide. Do you ever find it hard, actually, to write and research all of these cases? Yeah, the chapter on suicide was really hard to write. And we both, we both kind of got into a funk while we were writing it because it's just such a... It, it's just human beings have a hard time coming to terms with people killing themselves, right? Which is why it's been a taboo for so long. It's, it was incredibly depressing, especially, I think, the suicide chapter. Yeah, yeah. and also, you know, it's, it's very strongly connected with pain. And Anne is someone who's lived through a lot of pain in recent years. And, you know, when you're writing about suicide and seeing this link with pain, you think, oh, my God, you know, how would I feel if the pain were that bad? And, you know, and what seems to be increasing in America, we have a chapter on pain, too, is there's been this huge increase in pain, and probably in social pain as well as physical pain. You know, social pain associated with isolation, with all that sort of stuff. And, you know, all of us see pain in our lives. And when you see those connections, you think, oh, dear, you know, this is something that's much closer to us than you might think. It's not just something that happens to other people on the other side of the world or something. Well, we also what's we also spent part of the time we wrote the book being angry, right? When we would we would look and we would see. You mean there are five lobbyists from the healthcare industry for every member of Congress? 
that just made us angry. You know, so when we saw, when we dug into uh, reports, so it was not our original work, but looking into reports about Purdue Pharmaceutical being able to manipulate the system in a way that allowed them to market what is essentially heroin in pill form and target areas of the U.S. where they thought people would be vulnerable and would take up these uh, very highly addictive drugs. We were angry. And and the so, Drug Enforcement Agency tried to stop them, and politicians changed the law or blocked them or fired people. So it's just like, you know, these people who are supposed to be representing you and protecting you are doing exactly the opposite. And, you know, you, it's very easy to get into It's not, of course, completely true. <laughs> Think of the government as a sort of criminal conspiracy that's trying to collude with, you know, with, with these criminals to really make things worse. I mean, that's why we told the story of the opium war at the beginning of the yeah. opium chapter, which is, you know, when these Scottish thugs essentially, you know, who were, whose profits were being threatened because the emperor didn't want his subjects to be addicted, then turned to the British government who lent them the gunboats to go and fix it. You know, and we think, well, that was a long time ago. But what we're doing now is not so different. And I should say, Angus is Scottish. So when he talks about Scottish thugs, it's his people. I know what I'm speaking about, <laughs> yes. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I have another question which we touched on, but th- this person's writing in saying, you know, how do you explain the fact that people often vote against their own economic interests? Trump remains very popular, even though he continued to funnel wealth upwards in America. I think the fact that we even ask that question is a problem because it shows a certain patronizing attitudes towards people that we know better what their economic interests are than they know. And then at the same time, we do nothing to help them. Just as, you know, these Democratic administrations in Washington before Trump, you know, they had not helped those people at all. So voting for Hillary Clinton didn't seem like it was in their interests either. And I think it's difficult because it it is very patronizing to say, you know, why don't you vote for things that are good for you? Are you stupid? Are you demented? Are you, you know? Um, So I think we have to think of better solutions than that. So this person writes in and says, to what extent is despair a relative thing? 
Well, that's um, Anne's the one who invented the term, <laughs> so yeah. you can ask her what she. So meant we, by. yeah, um, we, we. I, I originally used the words "deaths of despair" because it was a shorthand just for overdose, alcoholic liver disease, and suicide. And so instead of having to keep repeating that, we just started calling them "deaths of despair." But immediately, it was picked up by the press because it hit a nerve. It, it seemed to capture something that was in the air. And so I'm not, so for us, deaths of despair is really just that. It's not necessarily defining what despair is, but it's really just to say that we didn't think that any of those deaths, those are deaths before their, when, before their time people are dying. It was a sign that something was really terribly badly wrong. Which is, and it did open us to a lot of misinterpretation. I mean, some people said, "Well, they're economists by despair; they must mean that people have low incomes." Well, that's not what we meant at all. And I think the psychologists and docs and things—they don't work with this term. I mean, if you look at the diagnostic manual, I don't think you'll find despair as a well-defined condition like Alzheimer's disease or something. So people are saying, well, why didn't they define despair? Okay, okay, you know. But the term, the term got the concept well known, and I think it's done its job. So Chris from London writes in and says, what is your view on universal income as a solution for the blue-collar audience, like in Finland? Well, we think it's a disaster. I think it's a really bad idea. In Finland, I think they tried it out, they experimented with it. I don't think they've instituted it. So there's one circumstance in which it would make sense, and that, I think, is uh, this dystopia, which has not come yet, when there's nothing, there's no work for anything but robots. And so the only people who get paid are the inventors and the owners of the robots. And you couldn't imagine a world like that. But, you know, we're a very, very, very long way from that world. The unemployment rate right now is coming down. You know, it's just a few percent. We're not talking about mass unemployment because of robots. The problem with it is that when people think of universal basic income, they seem to think that everybody's going to get paid, which is true. But someone has to pay for it. And, and so there are people who have to go to work and have to pay for the people who decide not to go to work and use their universal basic income you know, to sit around in hippie groups reading poetry, which is one example that Bob Frank came up with and which we talk about in the book. He has this wonderful example of a Minnesota dentist who's living a really hard life. It's cold. His patients are nasty to him a lot of the time. They refuse to pay their bill. They have bad breath, all this sort of thing. And he gets home exhausted in the evening and he turns on the television and there's a bunch of 20 hippies in California who, using their UBI, <laughs> to sit around and read poetry to each other and smoke marijuana and have a wonderful life. And he gets so angry that he vote for anyone who comes along who wants to stop this. So I think most people, yeah, I think this is your line, right, about most people actually want a job. Yeah, most, I, I think in the U.S., and I don't want to speak for other countries, but as we traveled the U.S. and we talked to people, it's I don't want a handout, which is what they would call it here. I want a job. I want a job was, that gives me some dignity and, and, and is a reason for self-esteem. So I, I think that at least in the U.S., 
the, the, the job that you hold is part of your definition of yourself, and it gives meaning to your life. And that most people in the U.S. would rather have a job with dignity than what they would call a handout. And that's partially cultural, I think, but I just don't think in the U.S. that would ever be feasible. And I think the people who have to work in jobs they don't like would be very unkeen to share part of the wages those with people who are not doing anything at all or in wages they do like. So I, I don't think it's, it's an, I think it's a non-starter. There was, you know, it was raised in, in America in the six, in the seventies, I guess, when Nixon was president the under the form of a negative income tax. And it gets a lot of traction because it's favored by people on the far right and people on the far left. So that makes it attractive to politicians. But when people see what happened in America is they did some experiments, some social experiments in which they gave people extra money and see what happened. And what happened was there was a big reduction in the amount of work they did. And when Nixon and the Republicans saw that, that was the end of it. So what's your take on the huge relief bill or stimulus package that we could see in the U.S.? Would it create, if, if it's spent on infrastructure, would that create jobs that, that you know, people want? Is it quality jobs? I think a huge infrastructure bill would be a fabulous idea. I don't think that's what we'll see in this $1.9 trillion bill. There are parts of that $1.9 trillion bill that are terrific. I mean, it's going to help us get the vaccines out faster and possibly help us with contact tracing and with even more testing. So what, about a third of it would be for that. State and local governments who have had to pay a lot of bills and who see their revenues fall are going to get shot in the arm, which is great. And the part of it that I'm less keen on is that most people in the U.S. will see an additional $1,400. Now, I think if that were better targeted to poorer people who would actually spend the money rather than just put it in their bank account, that would be a better bill. But I, I think that we certainly need something big. And um, I encouraged that most of it will get through, although the $15 minimum wage had to be shed. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to me that, and this is true in Britain, and I know a lot of Brits feel the same way, that, you know, these essential workers have done incredible service um, during this epidemic. And isn't it about time we paid them a little bit more? And I think the minimum wage would really help towards that. I think also it would recognize the dignity of low-wage work by just saying we just couldn't have this. So... I'm sure that some people would lose their jobs, perhaps in restaurants or perhaps in the South, where wages are very low. But I think the benefits would greatly outweigh that and would sort of help. And also, economists have really changed their views. Um, and the British experience has been part of this. I mean, you've had a minimum wage since 2000. And there's been a lot of research trying to find jobs being lost as a consequence of that, which no one has yet discovered. And what that tends to mean, I think, is that many employers are actually underpaying their workers and would be happy to pay them more. And actually, they might be more productive and things. So there's lots of side effects like that. And I think there's been a big change in economics 
towards um, favoring that. The other thing here right now is the political situation. This is this bill, uh, the stimulus bill or whatever it's called, the $1.9 trillion, is enormously popular. There's like 70% people in favor of it, including majority of Republicans. And yet not one Republican senator is going to vote for this bill. So one very strong argument for going big now is you'll probably never get another chance. And what happened at the beginning of the Obama presidency was he tried to be bipartisan and was strung along by Republicans who said, if you change a little bit here and change a little bit there and make it more to a ranking, they got a big shift in the bills, but then they voted against it anyway. So this is not, I think Biden learned pretty much from that lesson. And I don't think the Republicans can complain too much about it in this instance. But what Anne said too is the, the $1,400 checks are not going to anyone. There's a limit, which I think yeah. is around $70,000. That will decrease inequality by itself because a lot of the really rich people are earning a lot more than that. I have a very good question on education. And this person writes in, as an educational alternative to college, does the U.S. have an apprenticeship system? like we have in Europe? And if it doesn't, should one be created? I think one should be created. Absolutely. I think that there's so much we could learn from the uh, from the German system, from the other systems, and that that would be one track that we could try to put resources behind and see if we could get somewhere with. We have a junior college system, which is what is usually called gives associate degrees. That doesn't seem to do all that much for people in terms of their wages or their mortality. But I think we need to enhance that and make people realize maybe more salaries. We heard the other day that plumbers are being paid $100,000 a year. There's shortage of skilled artisanal jobs. But it, it's part of this loop we've been talking about that there's so much status given to going to college that parents say, and you know, their kid says, I really want to be a plumber. Look, they are thin. I like fixing cars. I want to do that. You know, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, Case and Deaton have just shown if you don't go to college, you're going to die. <laughs> we had a friend here who said, you know, my son says he's not sure he wants to go to college. And I know we're bothered him, but now he's going to college. And that's not what we intended. So one reform we haven't talked about yet is that in the U.S., as was true in many other countries, the U.S. pushed globalization as being something where the pie will only get bigger if we globalize, so we must globalize. Well, the pie got bigger, but the distribution of that pie changed with globalization. And it might be the case that now we're talking about it for national security reasons. We should be having um, things made at home so that when there's the next pandemic, we can be prepared for that. But it's not just for national defense reasons. We probably want to pull back a bit on globalization, which will start to protect those jobs. So, you know, we can't go to the store and buy a dozen beautiful glasses that were made in China, you know, for a dollar each. Instead, we pay more money for those things. But at the same time, we probably protect glassmakers in America. And I think that it's time for us to really start to have those debates again about how far globalization should go. 
so would you advocate actually retrenching on some of the globalization that we've seen or just maybe stopping from where we are? I think it's retrenching already. Uh, you know, it, it stopped increasing after 2008, after the Great Recession, and there's been quite a bit of decline even pre-COVID. And then I think with COVID, people are going to worry much more about their supply chains just for health reasons. And so there's a real chance to do some of that. So th this person's writing in saying, you point to income inequality as a root of the problem, but the U.S. isn't really an outlier on this globally. How do you deal with this? So in, in basically the idea is in a globalized world, how do you defend a living standard for low-skilled workers in the U.S. that is far above the standard of living of similar people elsewhere? I think we defend them because the alternative is so awful. And, you know... I think also, and N I think probably differs on this a little bit, that I've never been a cosmopolitan in that sense, which says what we owe most is to the poorest person in the world. I think we owe a lot to our fellow citizens because they're our fellow citizens. You know, we, we spend this month in Montana in the summer, and a lot of the people we meet there have children who go into the military, right? So you've got, and that's typical of red states, of states where not so many people are getting educated and where there isn't a lot of work to do, people go into the military. So do we say to these people who are defending us, who are dying for us in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, you know, I'm sorry, but there's a poorer person than you who lives in India, and so we're going to reduce your salary. And I think we have debts to our fellow citizens which are not the same as the debts we have to people in India or in Zambia or in Rwanda or wherever you'd like to think. I do think, you know, we have obligations to those other people too, but I don't think they trump the obligations to our fellow citizens. It's also the case that um, globalization and automation have come to all European countries and to the UK, but we're not seeing or have not been seeing deaths of despair rising dramatically. There are exceptions like Scotland, but for the most part, not at all. And our question is, well, why is that? And we think part of it is that they don't have to worry about health care. People don't have to worry about a safety net. People are supported in a way in Europe and in the UK that they're not supported in the US. In the US, it's the case, if you don't make it, it's your own fault and you're on your own. And I think that that is a serious difference that really isn't well captured by some of the measures of inequality that are being compared between countries. This is a loaded question. So a cynical view might say that the current structure of U.S. healthcare has been a big beneficiary of COVID and explains the relative lack of action by the previous administration. What are your thoughts? Well, the previous administration wasn't going to do anything about the healthcare system anyway. They liked it. You know, they, they, that was an administration of rent seekers and cronyism. So they were absolutely at home with the healthcare system. The question now, I think more is that as the pandemic, as we, I mean, as we pick up the wreckage after the pandemic is what will happen then. And one thing we mentioned already is, you know, Johnson & Johnson, you know, who was growing opium poppies in Tasmania to fuel this epidemic of death in the United States, 
right, and who paid a huge fine to one of the state attorney generals for doing that, is now, you know, just is our savior and has brought these additional vaccines, which were approved the other day. So there's certainly going to be a change in reputation of some of these pharma companies, at least. They were much, much hated in America because people had to pay so much for drugs. So maybe that'll change, but maybe it'll come back. Also, there's not really been a full accounting. We don't know who was paid how much and how much the executives of J&J and Pfizer and everyone else made as a result of this, and that might cause some problems. As far as hospitalization is concerned, it's too early to tell. A lot of people lost their insurance during COVID because they lost their jobs. That has surprisingly not been a huge, lively thread in the public debate. I'm sure there's some there. But you don't see headlines in the papers every day saying, here's X, they got COVID, they're now got a bill for $100,000 or something. That may come. It may also be that some of these stimulus bills are paying hospitals to treat COVID patients so that the COVID patients don't have to pay. I don't really know. I don't mm-hmm. think we know. Yeah. Do, do you think this, this administration and will change actually some of the health care? They would love uh, to. Well, they'll... The the big question is for us, I think, will they actually try to control costs? I mean, they, they will do a good job of, of trying to make sure everyone is covered. And so coverage has been a big deal and coverage should be a big deal. But coverage would be so much easier if it wasn't so expensive, if we weren't spending, you know, ex, an excess of a trillion dollars a year on things that we shouldn't have to spend money on in the healthcare system, everything would be easier. And I just don't know whether they have the stomach for trying to rein in the hospitals that have merged. And every time the hospitals merge, they raise their prices. Well, then what we have to see is whether or not they're willing to go after those hospitals, after the pharma companies. And I don't know politically whether we can expect that in this administration. But for instance, Bachara, who is, mm-hmm. I think that's his name, who is, is under confirmation for Health and Human Services, one of, he did good stuff in California by pursuing a hospital chain that was doing exactly that. It was gobbling up all its competitors and raising prices. So he knows about that. The big difference between this administration and the last one is the last one didn't want to do anything about this, right? They were just a bunch of rich people preying on the rest of us. So, you know, the healthcare is exactly what they, (laughs) their modus operandi. These guys feel differently about that. And I have no doubt at all that all of them would like to reform healthcare. Whether they can get it done, given the constraints, given the lobbyists, given the huge amount of money, you know, and even if you go back to Britain in 1945, when Nye Bevan started the National Health Service, you know, he made it happen by basically buying off the doctors and other people's giving them huge sums of money to accept this. And I think that's what Obama tried to do with Obamacare. Everybody got rich on that. So they didn't, you know, they didn't oppose it. On the other hand, it made the problem worse because they were still richer, even though more people got insurance. So that was the devil's bargain that Obamacare accepted, and they didn't have much choice on that. But this is just incredibly difficult to oppose this amount of money. This is where inequality really hurts, because you've got these incredibly rich people who want to protect their turf. And they all believe that they're entitled to it. 
I think I only have time for one or two more questions, but this person's writing and saying, you know, the the changes you suggest won't happen as long as companies have better access to political power than workers. So what political changes are required to, to have a better capitalist system that works for the workers? Well, unions used to have a lot of that power. And so, you know, one thing that would happen if there were stronger unions would be they were be workers would be better represented in Washington. And I think that would really help. So backing away from these laws and these changes. The other thing is, you know, when we talk to sympathetic congressmen about this work, they say you need campaign finance reform. Well, we've talked about some heavy lifts today, but you know you want a really, really heavy lift, try that one. You've got a Supreme Court that's being handpicked by, you know, pretty right-wing people, the Federalist Society and so on, in which economists played a big role in doing that. And they've got this very pro-business court, um, which is not going to help with any of that at all. But short of that, watchdog groups who look at lobbyists and actually begin to publish what is being spent to lobby the Congress on various things, if that was received more attention, I think voters might begin to pay attention. But- and there's work that's coming out, you know, this work on surprise medical bills, for instance. Mm-hmm. People who are fully covered, and then they get a $30,000 bill for the ambulance that took them to the hospital. That really did make a lot of people really angry. There's a recent study the other day that when private equity takes over a nursing home, more people die. So there's a lot of stuff like that that I think will get worse and worse. And, but it, those things tend to cause reform around the edges. And, you know, the surprise medical bills, which almost every politician on both sides of the aisle wanted got rid of, and they couldn't, though they seem to have got no, something now, but it took two years. Well, the, the hour flew by. So thank you so much for a great conversation, Angus. And, and of course, um, to all of the Intelligence Square people, thank you. <laughs>